Hi everyone, welcome back. So for our next presenter, we have James E. Akashay, who is a corporate and commercial litigator from Markinson and E. Akashay. You might recognize him from the popular video program Coffee and our case notes. And uh, he will be presenting on section 66G of the Conveyancing Act. Please uh, make James feel welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, a show. I'll, I'll claim it. That'll be, um, that'll be good. Um, thanks to you all for your time. Uh, I'm going to try to be conscious of the balance of it. Uh, we're going to talk about Section 66G. It's going to be a little bit boring at the start, and it'll get more interesting as we work through it. I think the paper I'm speaking from is the final one in your booklet with the... Uh, the font that's probably poorly chosen, but, but oh, I guess that's a battle we can, uh, we can fight another day. The paper is called Let's Get Someone Else to Sell It, because what we're speaking about today is Section 66G of the Conveyancing Act and Trustees for Sale. So, what we're talking about is co-owners at war. And as I say in the paper, many lawyers' fortunes have been built on those three and a bit words uh, and we can imagine why, if we take a little bit of time reflecting on it, because if you find yourself owning a piece of property along with someone else and you two don't agree on the best use that property ought to be put to, that problem can seem intractable, it can seem impossible, it can seem like there's no escape for you and your co-owner. And what Section 66G offers and Section 36A uh, if there are any shuttles involved, offers is an opportunity for those co-owners to cash out those interests. Co-owners at war and how you are going to solve it in your practice, that's the thrust of today's discussion. So uh, if we think about the sorts of co-owners that find themselves at war, that find themselves uh, in a disagreement about how the land, how the real property ought to be best uh, managed, best applied, best dealt with. Uh, we sort of bump into a number of types. We've got a couple uh, who may have been married or perhaps formally married. Uh, we've got beneficiaries of an estate who perhaps don't see eye to eye on the way that the land ought to be dealt with. Uh, we've often got commercial people uh, who may have purchased the land with a view to dealing with it in some way and over time that commercial purpose or that agreement uh, has fallen away. Uh, and as we find uh, in a couple of uh, slightly sad uh, scenarios that we're going to work through today, there are a few mothers and sons uh, involved, and so we'll come to that too. The structure of today's talk is we're going to dive into the nuts and bolts of the law first. So we're going to get a little bit bored, and it's going to be a little bit ugly, a little bit crunchy. Uh, then we're going to move to some practical examples. We're going to work through a number of uh, judicially considered examples of Section 66G orders being made, not being made, and some pieces of satellite litigation that have surrounded uh, the appointment of 66G trustees for sale. So start with the law, then we're going to do some examples, and then we're going to have some, some chat, uh, we're going to have a chat about some practical strategies uh, that you can use in your practice to empower you when you're advising clients who might find themselves in a 66G-flavoured situation. Law, examples, suggestions. Hopefully it'll work. 
And is it 115 or 130? Is it 115? We'll see. We'll see how we go. <laughs> so, a 66G order, the impact of it is serious. What happens? Legal ownership. Um, so we can cast back to second year uni, I think, uh, trust and property, legal ownership. Um, legal ownership as far as whatever the land's title office is called now. Uh, as a litigator, it's not something I've... It, registry, land registry... LRS. LRS, yeah, great. That, whatever that is, or whatever it'll be called tomorrow. Legal ownership, according to that, um, is precisely who is recorded as the owner. And that is, as we all know, distinct from beneficial ownership of property. So in the case of a piece of real property held on trust, according to the registry, whatever, um, the legal owner will be the trustee. And according to, let's say, the testator's will or according to the SMSF trust deed or according to the Section 66G orders, the beneficiaries of the trust will be the beneficial owners of that real property. Trust, trust, trust law in 30 seconds. So what does a Section 66G order do? It appoints a new legal owner. It appoints different parties to become legal owners of the property and converts those former legal owners' interests into beneficial interests as trustees. The mechanic, especially when it's explained poorly, is a little bit crunchy, so let's just make sure we're all grounded. A 66G order in relation to a piece of property appoints new legal owners and converts those former legal owners into beneficiaries of a trust. The new legal owner is the trustee or trustees and that trustee is then charged with the duty to sell the property, get the money in, pay out any fees, costs and disbursements and distribute back to the beneficiaries that money, the net of that money in the proportion of their entitlements. So because we're not going to spend that much time working on the law, I might just work through a brief fact scenario to ground us. We have two, let's say, joint owners uh, who are a husband and husband. They uh, get a divorce or they fall out. Uh, one husband applies for 66G orders and on the making of those 66G orders, Ben Malone becomes the legal owner of the property and the husband and husband become beneficiaries of the sale trust of which Ben is trustee. Ben is then obliged to go ahead and sell the real property. Ben is then obliged to call in funds. Ben is then obliged to pay out the fees. Ben is then entitled to pay his own fees, which is <laughs> a complexity that we'll work through. Very reasonable, I'm sure, Ben. Um, <laughs> and then Ben will account back to the husbands in their proportion. And if it's joint, it'll be 50-50. But we're going to work through some, through some crunchy examples where we can see those being adjusted. So rather than spend too long looking at the section, I'd like us to all be grounded in that mechanic. Co-owners, five of them. 66G order made. We get the trustees in, two of them. The trustees become the legal owners. Our five legal owners become beneficial owners whose interest arises due to their relationship with the trustees for sale.
and I'm planning not to speak too much more about the law, but I'd like to be confident that we feel good about the mechanic. I'm getting some nods. We're feeling, we feeling good? Okay. We can, we can flick through a couple of fairly long pages there. Um, if we look at 66G, just a couple of things I'll bring to your attention. Um, shuttles uh, cannot be the subject of a 66G order. So um, all you property lawyers know more about fixtures and fittings and all this sort of stuff that can be on a property. Uh, you know that better than I do. There's no need for concern because section 36A allows uh, shuttles to be the subject of a similar order. And so what you'll often find uh, in relation to land with fixtures and fittings or some apparatus or some plant and equipment or, or whatever is that you'll find a 66G order made in relation to the land and a 36A order made in relation to the whatever else. So chattels, not 66G, but it's a problem you can impress your client by solving. Joint owners. If a 66G application is made uh, and it is not concluded and one joint owner dies before the 66G order is made, the rule of survivorship does not apply. So our dead joint owner's interest in the outcome of that 66G application forms part of, uh, in the case of our two husbands, form part, forms part of dead husband's estate. The rule of survivorship does not apply after the making of a 66G order. The joint, so <laughs> I'll say this loosely because this is not the legal position, but to, to speak broadly, it's almost as if the joint owners become 50-50 tenants in common for the purpose of the operation of those orders. I'll ask you not to hold me to that technical point, but for the purpose of understanding the mechanism, that I say is a useful way of thinking about it. The other fundamental point I'd like us to take from our very short review of the law is that a 66G order may be made more or less as of right. A properly prepared 66G application will succeed. It will have supremely strong prospects. And uh, the basis of hardship or unfairness are not really sufficient to resist an order. And we're gonna go through some examples to put some meat on this. So there's no need to be too concerned. This is the hard bit and we're speeding through the hard bit. So if it feels a bit fuzzy, don't worry. We're going to get there. We'll sort it out. Let me repeat that though. A 66G order will be made more or less as of right. So we take our two husbands. One husband says, I want 66G orders. The other husband says, this is my childhood home and I've lived here all my life and we're trying to raise the kids and I don't know what I'm going to do and uh, here's my difficult financial position. Irrelevant. The basis of hardship or unfairness is not enough to resist a 66G application. Properly prepared and made on behalf of a co-owner, your application has very strong prospects of success. The 66G orders will be made more or less as of right. They're gonna happen. The exceptions are when a fiduciary obligation might arise to stand in the way of the order. 
when a contractual obligation might stand in the way of making an order or when there would be some other equitable reason not to make the order. And in one example, we're going to see in the decision of Sakar, um, which I presume I'm mispronouncing, but uh, it's S-U-K-K-A-R, what we're going to see is an application fail for spicy reasons that uh, that's a dispute between a mother and son. So stay tuned for, uh, for an exciting example. Trustees for sale are obliged to consult the beneficiaries and uh, I would not particularly like to advise our beneficiaries to uh, seek an order enforcing that obligation <laughs> because of the consultation I imagine made in, uh, made in the circumstances of an ugly piece of litigation would probably not uh, go the way your clients might hope, but in any case there's an obligation for trustees to consult the beneficiaries of the trust. The views of those beneficiaries do not bind the trustees, of course, but there is an obligation to consult. Uh, and a co-owner, uh, in the case of our two husbands, a co-owner uh, himself or um, themselves will not be appointed trustees absent any other order of the court. And the reasons, uh, the re reasons for that are fairly trite. Um, <laughs> there's a dispute <laughs> between these people. They're not, they're not getting along. So making one of them trustees is uh, probably not a great idea. When we're talking about who's going to be trustee, which is another spicy issue we'll get into, um, the court will tend to prefer the party, I withdraw that, the court will tend to prefer the preference of the party with the greater interest in the land. The court wants independent trustees. Uh, if there's more active duties over and above causing a conveyance, um, the court will reflect on the skill, the background, will do a, will you know, stalk the LinkedIn page of the uh, contemplated trustees and come to a view as to who among competing sets of trustees ought to be appointed, and we'll come to that. Uh, the court will also look to get the best value for money uh, within parameters uh, and for so long as the competing attributes are otherwise reasonably finely balanced. So, congratulations. That was the speed round on the law of 66G. Um, and to the extent any of that is still fuzzy, I think you're entitled to feel that's fuzzy. What we're gonna do now is dive into the meatier section of today's discussion. We're gonna work through some, through some examples. And hopefully, if you've got this mechanic in your mind that I'm gonna repeat again with apology of legal owners, getting new legal owners appointed and themselves being converted to beneficiaries. New legal owners sell the land, get the money in, pay everyone else, pay themselves, distribute the balance, and it's over. So, how does it work? Uh, O'Day and O'Day, we've got uh, a pair of brothers uh, who uh, own units in Bondi. And one brother commences 66G proceedings. And you have advised that brother on his prospects and you correctly advised that his prospects of getting up were compelling. And so he succeeded in getting 66G trustees appointed. Con congratulations, <laughs> uh, good advice. What happens from there is the trustees, as they are obliged to, uh, they go about trying to sell the property. And our non-applicant brother enters into a contract for sale. 
and things get crunchy and ugly and notices to complete are issued and not complied with and for reasons you would understand better than I would, the conveyance falls down. And the non-applicant brother who attempts the sale fails, fails to complete, the sale doesn't complete. The trustees for sale are still obliged to complete the transaction so they're out in the marketplace and a year later they enter into a contract and it's completed and perhaps not directly relevant, but out of interest it's about $500,000 less than what our non-applicant brother was attempting to pay a year earlier. So I'm not going to speculate, um, but we can imagine some of the reasons that conveyance might have fallen down. In any case, uh, oh, what I should say for completeness is that our applicant brother died um, during the litigation. This is not a substantial issue, but when I refer to the applicant brother, I'm more or less referring to his legal personal representatives uh, who continue to run the litigation on his behalf. So for completeness, I'll just make that clear. The piece of litigation we're dealing with is an application from our applicant brother to have the trust funds that the trustees now have, because they've sold the property, remember, and they've got five million or so in funds sitting in their solicitor's trust account. And what applicant brother says is my entitlement from these funds should be adjusted up and my brother's entitlement from these funds should be adjusted down because of this failed conveyance, because of the costs involved in this failed conveyance. I should get more, you should get less. What applicant brother also does, sorry, what non-applicant brother, what our agitated brother uh, says is he is considering a claim against the trustees. So what the court has before it is a notice of motion on behalf of uh, our applicant brother saying I want more and a section 63 application for judicial advice from the trustees who are seeking advice as to how much money they can hang on to to potentially fight this other brother who has flagged this very vague claim and hasn't put any skeleton, hasn't put any skin or skin on the bones, meat on the bones, flesh on the bones. It's a crap claim, uh, poorly articulated. Um, so crap, uh, poor, poorly articulated, let's, let's stick with that. And so the trustees get the advice they want, they hang on to 500 grand uh, on the off chance that they're gonna have to resist some claim and they'll hang on to it for a certain amount of time and they may have to approach the court again for more advice um, based on the conduct of the beneficiaries of the trust. But perhaps interestingly, perhaps more interestingly, our applicant brother's motion fails. Remember what our applicant brother was trying to do was trying to say, you caused all these costs with this failed conveyance. It, the consequences of, the, of that should be visited upon your entitlement from the trust funds. Therefore, you get adjusted down, I get adjusted up. What the court said was no, for two reasons. One, the entitlement to an adjustment of what money comes to you from a Section 66G trust is an adjustment based upon rights as co-owners. Clumsy way of saying that is the claim has to be between the co-owners and then we can have an adjustment. Of course, what this claim actually is, is a claim the trustees might have had because it was the trustees who were vendors of the property. Our applicant brother was a disappointed onlooker um, who might have hoped things went differently, but the applicant brother himself 
uh, did not have any genuine stake in the dispute, which was essentially between the trustees and the defendant brother. And so what the court said is, firstly, uh, it's not your claim, it's the trustee's claim, so go away. Secondly, what you're agitating is not a co-ownership right, so go away. I told you it was fun. 66G. Okay. Sakar, Sakar. Uh, sounds like a villain in The Lion King or something. Um, uh, that's probably a really insensitive thing to say. I might withdraw that as well. Um, <laughs> let's turn to a mother and son. I promised a mother and son. Um, here we have a mother and father who co-own a property. And we have a mother who mortgages her interest in the property for the benefit of the son. Right? Mum and dad own. Son has a mortgage over mum's share. Son tries to get a 66G order made. He wants to cash out his entitlement, uh, which is an interesting thing to do to your parents. But in any case, that's what he wants to do. And do you remember we said before, the right to seek a 66G order was a right of co-owners. So son is not an owner. What he is, is an encumbrancer. And section 66F deals with the possibility that an encumbrancer can seek 66G orders. And he says, I'm the beneficiary of this mortgage. My interest is secured. On that basis, I'm an encumbrancer. Where's my orders? Mum cross claims. She says, the mortgage was entered into as a result of undue influence, duress, unconscionable conduct. Short point, and we'll only do the short point, is she got up. Uh, she uh, admired her son, who was a lawyer. Uh, she had been alienated from most of her family, aside from the son. They have a really complex uh, relationship of sort of love with a bit of deception, with a bit of trust, with a bit of all this sort of crunchy stuff. And in short, the court finds that the transaction, which is to say the uh, granting of a mortgage, was not in mum's interest, was the result of undue influence, and so is voidable. What that means is that son is not an encumbrancer, and so, for all the 66G lawyers in the room, what that means is that son has no basis to seek a 66G order. So, if our question is when will a 66G application fail, it'll fail when someone is not entitled to get the orders. And that's an example of it. Legal costs. So let me refresh your memory on the mechanism. Legal owners turn into beneficiaries. New legal owners come in, sell the property, get the money, pay out the costs, and then distribute the balance to the beneficiaries. And so what of legals? What of legals even of the 66G application? The prima facie position is everyone gets their legals out of the trust fund. Everyone gets their legals of the 66G application out of the trust fund. So we turn to this decision of Lisi and Fono. We've got some brothers. No, we don't. I'm getting confused. Who cares? We've got some co-owners. And what these co-owners do is argue about the best use to put the land to, fail to come to an agreement, 
Uh, one of them says, I want to sell, uh, commences 66G proceedings, and before they become contested, an agreement is reached that, trust, that a trustee should be appointed. And with respect, that is almost 100% of the time the right outcome. If you're ever acting for a respondent for a 66G application, I encourage you to think very, very, very carefully before advising that client to contest the application because there's a firm, strong chance your client's going to go down in flames. And so I suspect the flavour of the advice that the respondent received was poor prospects. And so before the matter was litigated, trustee was appointed. There was agreement on that basis. What happened next uh, was the only thing not agreed was legal costs. And if we refresh our memory on the mechanism, usually legal costs of the 66G are going to come out of the trust funds. Now, in this case, what our respondent, I nearly said brother, what our respondent co-owner says is, look, the 66G application was accompanied by an affidavit of some length. Considerable costs were incurred in relation to the creation of that affidavit. You weren't seeking an adjustment. You were only seeking 66G on the basis of our existing co-ownership proportions. And so all this money spent on the affidavit is utterly irrelevant because you're not even complaining about my conduct. The claim's not about all this stuff you ventilate in the affidavit. So the cost of that affidavit should not be visited on the trust. Each party should bear their own. And the short point is that argument was successful. And so it's a bit of a cautionary tale for your agitated and upset 66G client who says, I want to tell my life story uh, family provision claim style uh, in my affidavit. And you may well say, well, no, hang on. Let's just prove you the owner. <laughs> let's just send, let's just annex the two letters you've sent off saying I want to sell. Let's just annex the email of, you know, your brother telling you to fuck off. And that's, you, you know, let's, let's keep it at three pages if we can and see how we go. This is a cautionary tale about taking the opposite approach because the cost, as I say, were visited on the applicant, notwithstanding the making of the 66G orders. So that's each party bearing their own costs. When will an indemnity costs order be made in favour of the applicant? We've got another mother and son. Mum is subject to a financial management order uh, made by the NCAT, and I suspect, I might just get a nod. We all know what a financial management order is. Uh, uh, a, a, a financial management order, someone will interrupt me to give a better explanation, but it might be thought of as something very, very similar to the appointment of an attorney mixed with the appointment of a tutor. So someone who's the legal person or representative of the managed person. So mum's uh, financial manager wants to sell mum's property because mum is at a retirement village and the costs are significant. And one of mum's big assets is the home that she co-owns with Sun. So the financial manager makes moves to sell. Sun goes to the NCAT to seek a review of the financial manager's decision to sell and fails. Sun was sitting there at NCAT saying, alternative finance, alternative finance, we can get alternative finance. And the NCAT essentially said, no evidence. We've got no basis for finding that. And so the NCAT review fails. Mum, which is to say mum's financial manager, then goes and seeks a 66G order. Son initially resists that on the same basis. Finance, finance, we can find some finance. Without 
providing evidence of being able to do that. It is, a, it is little more than an assertion. And uh, eventually, probably getting advice from someone as well informed as you now are on 66G, son agrees to the appointment of a trustee, trustee's appointed, place is sold, money's in the kitty. But what mum says by her financial manager is she says that the costs incurred in relation to the 66G application were sufficiently unreasonably incurred that on the indemnity basis, you should be paying mine. Short point is she succeeded because of that complexity we worked through. Uh, you can well imagine the uh, baseless assertion in the NCAT that led to a failed review of the transaction that failed, the baseless resistance initially to the 66G application uh, that uh, failed, as well. oh, sorry, when I say failed, that, that was an initial position taken leading to costs being incurred. Uh, for those reasons, uh, the court made the order on the indemnity basis. Might just do it. Uh, we can skip a boring decision as well. We'll go to one where someone's in jail. That's fun. Uh, two coroners. We're in New South Wales. Uh, we co-own some property. Our Victorian co-owner moves away and our New South Wales co-owner remains on the property. Uh, though he later moves away to jail uh, on unrelated uh, charges. What our Victorian co-owner says is, I want a 66G application. Sorry, I'll draw that. What our Victorian co-owner does is make a 66G application and it comes before the court. Now, there are crunchy difficulties in the conduct of the litigation that uh, I don't have to bore you with at much length, but in short, uh, our imprisoned co-owner does not instruct solicitors and he appears by video link. Our Victorian co-owner uh, is not required for cross-examination, so she doesn't attend the hearing at all. Uh, and uh, one can empathise with her honour as she's hearing this, uh, hearing this one because she's talking about the, the difficulties with setting up, setting up the video link and dealing with these parties because also the evidence from both sides is with respect, and I might use her on his own words, uh, in an unsatisfactory state. So, let's think back to our first principles. The court is confronted with a 66G application, which, as we all now know, has super strong prospects of success. So it's more or less going to be made. But, what is also going on is that there's really cloudy evidence the reason that matters is because a Victorian partner is saying, I paid the mortgage, I paid the rates, and you've been living on the property. So I want my entitlement adjusted up. What imprisoned co-owner is saying is, I installed X, Y, and Z, and I've improved the property. So I want my entitlements adjusted up. So we both want more than 50%. And so in a situation where the evidence is in an unsatisfactory state, the court is forced to consider, well, what orders are we meant to make here? How are we meant to come to a proportion? Are we just going to make a decision and go, hmm, 55-45? Short answer to that point is no. The longer answer is the orders are made appointing the trustees, but the question of the contest about entitlements, which is normally one of the hot areas for dispute when you're making a 66G application, that's kicked down, the can is kicked down the road and uh, that's left for another day. And so here, 
the 66G orders are made, trustees are put in place to go off and do their work, sell it, get the money in, etc. And the contest about whose entitlement gets, to, gets adjusted up or down is saved for another day. We're doing well. We're, we're going to make it. It's good. Um, you, do, you guys are doing well. It's good. Uh, so who should be the trustees for the sale of diamonds? Now, uh, I want to focus on two parts of that. Who, the word who, and the word diamonds. And I'm going to refresh your memory on things you've learned. Firstly, diamonds, who cares? Because you know enough about Section 36A of the Conveyancing Act now to know that trustees for sale can be appointed in respect of chattels. And so here uh, we have trustee, I'll draw that. Here we have an application for the appointment of trustees in respect of very valuable property and apartments over there in inner eastern Sydney and all sorts of other stuff, including some wildly valuable jewellery. For anyone who's ever bought jewellery, um, uh, apparently it's monstrously difficult to value. And I might disclose here that we acted for the trustees for sale and this one who were eventually appointed. And so when I say jewellery is monstrously hard to value, there's an element of fatigue or grumpiness in my voice. You can take it from me that jewellery is very difficult to value. So let's just put a tick in the 36A box, which is to say, don't fret if you find a client who's in dispute, who is a co-owner of something other than land. You can advise on that 66G application and you can roll it up with an application about chattels as well, pursuant to 36A. So congrats, you know that now. Who was the other issue I wanted to bring to your attention? Here we had a broad agreement that the 66G order should be made because everyone's properly advised and everyone knows, well, of course, you've got to make the 66G orders, it's going to happen. Question of who, who would it be? Two competing uh, duos were presented. One competing duo might be referred to as uh, insolvency or external administration experts, partners at wherever, uh, and that's great. Someone wants external administration done, who do you get? You go get a partner from wherever. Great, congratulations. Um, the competing partners were perhaps uh, less obvious, but a little more bespoke they were what might be called property experts um, and they had a few decades experience in real estate and were boards of this and directors of that and shareholders and this, that and the other and they might be properly thought of as leading real estate experts in the country. And so the court was forced to form a view as to which appointment would be more in the interests of the beneficiaries of the trust. They had to consider, right, external administration experts, they do this every day, come in, they own it, bring in some money, got to sort it out with stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera, versus the appointment of what might be thought of as property experts. And the court referred to it as sort of an apples and oranges sort of comparison and looked at charge out rates. And then there were undertakings made that one set of, one set of trustees would undertake to not charge more than the other set of trustees. And, and, and it all became a bit exciting. Uh, but what the court said uh, was that it was a finely balanced decision and in short went with the property experts. Uh, and uh, I, I, without disrespect, I think it's possible to say that the alternative decision might well have been made on a different day of the week. But the reason I say this judgment is of interest is that the possibility of taking a bit of a bespoke approach to the assets that might form the subject of the 66G trust is one that would be in your client's best interest to bear in mind 
when you're reflecting on the possibility of this stuff becoming relevant. So that leads us nicely to two minutes of practical suggestions. Um, what have we learned? We've learned that if you want a 66G order, you'll get one, more or less, if you own the property. And so that might, and we've learned that an 18-page affidavit's too long. So it might sound like a fairly cheap, fairly quick uh, sort of mechanism for just like, oh, okay, well, I can't get along. Great, let's get them out, get them in, gone, easy. Well, uh, with respect, the fees of the trustees ought to be borne in mind. And uh, I love my 66G trustees and would happily uh, spend the next 35 years of my professional life acting for them. But those fees are not insignificant. Um, they take you out to nice lunches. Uh, so that's, that's uh, part, of the, part of the reasoning. Um, so that needs to be borne in mind. Those fees are gonna be visited on the trust funds that you've just advised your client to go and set up. And I think perhaps more relevantly and perhaps a little less lightheartedly, I think what we've learned today as well is that there are little satellite flare-ups, little other pieces of litigation that can be tacked on to a 66G application. So the idea of saying, it's quick, it's cheap, let's just do it, is a view that has good legal backing because the orders are gonna be made. But I think there's value in having a strategic reflection on whether it is truly in your client's interests to dive down this particular rabbit hole. And I think that's an open question and one that allows you to really ease in and be a trusted advisor to your client to say, hey, look, let's have a real proper think about this. Uh, get them to agree. What should the agreement have? Buy-sell mechanism, an agreed valuation method, perhaps a business plan, depending on how the property is gonna be used. Uh, and then just a couple of uh, other suggestions. Um, this is a bit of an insolvency sort of perspective or a bit of a corporate kind of perspective. Um, we often see disputes with co-owners who are also partners or who are also shareholders or who are also directors of something. And one of the first uh, forms of relief we think about is a receiver manager. Now, without disrespect to anyone engaged in that field, I think there's an available view that says a trustee for sale, a 66G appointment, rather than the appointment of a receiver manager, might be more cost effective because the job of the trustee for sale is to go in, sell it, get the money. Um, uh, Greg, who I think you heard from early, earlier today, and I have a matter, or had, had a matter, nearly, nearly got rid of it, where we've got some sheds and we've got a receiver manager appointed and my suggestion of a 66G trustee uh, <laughs> fell upon um, um, more experienced and more senior years. Um, and it didn't go ahead and went out war with the receiver manager. Um, uh, so there's an element of uh, that possibility arising. Um, and that arguably is an issue that can be cauterized if you've got someone to go in, sell it, get rid of it, get the money. And then you're arguing about what's in Joe Bloggs trust fund. And there's no issue of tenants or planning or fires or dust or disease or any, or any craziness like that. Selection of proposed trustees, I encourage you to think about that bespoke approach. Uh, and record keeping, uh, the keep good records, it's that trite advice. Um, if we're arguing about mortgage and mortgages and rates being paid, we're arguing about an agreement being entered into, if we're talking about undue influence, if we're talking about possible agreements, record keeping. So, uh, to close, 
I'd like to uh, congratulate you all on getting on top of the law, which was the first phase of our discussion today, the law of 66G, legal owners to beneficiaries, new legal owners in, sell it, money in, money out. We then worked through a number of examples, and what I hope you took from those examples was a bit of an understanding of the complexities that can come with a section 66G. And then I hope we left with just a couple of tiny little ideas of how 66G might look in your practice. And while it might be something where you might pick up the phone Monday morning and say, hey, guess what? We're gonna, we're gonna make this application. Uh, firstly, if you're conflicted out, uh, you know where to find me. Um, but secondly, um, I, I think there's space for a, a bit of commercial reflection on the role that a 66G application might play in your client's uh, locker. Thanks for your time.